God is good and all the time. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. I really am excited to be here this morning. Are you? Amen. Praise the Lord. As some of you maybe can tell, I have swallowed a frog this week. I heard there's a lot of frogs here in Naples, and I think one jumped in, and I pray that uh, he'll come out, but not during this service. Didn't you love Jarian and Shauna this morning? <laughs> Praise God. They are they're great friends of mine. Well, I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to begin in a moment in verse 16. We welcome all of you that are watching online. Thank you for being with us today at First Baptist Church of Naples. And we are just excited about what God has for us today. There is a controversy that is brewing in our church. I'm not sure that you are aware of it. Uh, this controversy actually started in the student ministry. Uh, and it is over this one question. It's a very important question. And that is, is a hamburger a sandwich? <laughs> some say yes, some say no. As for me and my house, we're going to pray about it. <laughs> Everybody loves a good sandwich. You love a good sandwich? I love a good sandwich. But what happens when what you think is a sandwich may not be a sandwich at all? What, what happens when what you think you're eating is not what they're telling you? Well, Subway, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they are the largest fast food sub-sandwich, but they're actually the largest fast food franchise in the world, surpassing even McDonald's. But over the past few years, they have gone through bad publicity. In the nation of Ireland, the courts found that the bread that Subway uses as bread for their sub-sandwiches is not bread at all because of the sugar content. Now, in recent months, there's a new controversy that is swirling over whether or not the most popular, one of the most popular sandwiches at Subway, the tuna fish sandwich, is real tuna or not. As a matter of fact, the New York Times newspaper did an investigative journalism piece and they commissioned a scientific study on the tuna fish sandwich from Subway. They sent it to a lab in California and they found no detectable tuna fish DNA in their sample. In other words, zero tuna. Subway has tried to counter these claims with a website called SubwayTunaFacts.com. No doubt that's what you'll be looking at while I'm preaching. <laughs> Subway CEO John Chesney said this, people love our tuna. We're very proud of our tuna, so I think that's really the end of the story. But if you have to create a website to defend whether or not your tuna fish sandwich is real or fake, you may have a public relations problem. So they, in the midst of this, just coincidentally decided to launch a new campaign called Eat Fresh, Refresh. Now I tell you this, not just to make you laugh this morning, I tell you this because I believe that the church in America has a PR problem. 
We say that we are about making disciples who make disciples. We are very proud of our disciple making. Yet if you look at the church in America, it is in a steady decline. Instead of the church reflecting Jesus to the broken world, the church is as broken as the broken world. We are more generic than we are authentic. We are more superficial than we rely on the supernatural. And could it be, my friends, that instead of making disciples, we're actually faking disciples? Or maybe we are faking making disciples. Well, as we start our adventure together, as a church family, I want to refresh our commitment to the mission of Jesus Christ on our lives and in this church. The last words of Jesus to his disciples before his ascension are the first words I want to share with you as your new pastor. The mission of our church and the mission of our lives is this, to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus of all people. Let's stand as we read God's word in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16. The Holy Spirit says to us today through Matthew. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's all read this together. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated. Matthew 28 is the resurrection story of Jesus that ends with the risen Savior commissioning his disciples. Matthew presents Jesus as king. Here, the resurrected king is standing before his disciples and he is instructing them to make disciples of Pantate Ethne, of all people. Jesus' resurrection is proof that he has all authority and therefore that should transform our priorities. If Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, then everything that Jesus tells us we should do, we should do. And everything Jesus tells us we can do, we can do. And so here's what I want you to get from the message this morning. We must not let the distractions of life keep us from the convictions that sustain us for the mission that Jesus has called us to do. Two things. Number one, the distractions that stop us. In verses 16 and 17, the Bible says that when they, the disciples, saw Jesus resurrected, they worshiped him. Imagine Jesus showing up in physical form right now. What would your response be? To worship. Well, here's some good news. Jesus is already here. But yet in the midst of seeing this resurrected Jesus in front of them, the Bible says that when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. 
That's one of the most encouraging and revealing verses in Scripture. It's encouraging because if these 11 disciples, after seeing everything that Jesus had, had done, and after hearing everything that Jesus had said, seeing Jesus as a resurrected Savior standing before them, if they could have doubts, that gives me hope. And what also this text tells us is it shows us that we are all prone to be dumb. <laughs> Jesus here appears in the midst of doubt and wonder, and he gives his disciples a great commission. The, the pr predominant or the main verb in this commission is the verb make disciples. The other parts of this phrase are participles that point to the main verb, which is making disciples to multiply. Now, the, the thing that many churches, and maybe you've been in church all of your life, and you've heard pastors say, you need to make disciples, you need to make disciples, but no one has never given you what, and no one has given you a succinct definition of what a disciple is. And so if you don't know what you're making, you won't make it. So I'm gonna give you a succinct definition of what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus in faith and lifestyle and helps others do the same. Someone who follows Jesus in faith and in lifestyle, but helps others do the same. This great commission finds its roots in Genesis. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed Adam and he blessed Eve and he gave them what scholars call the creation mandate. This mandate was to be fruitful, to multiply, and to cultivate the world. The the, the premise of this is that the, these image bearers, Adam and Eve, were to fill the earth with image bearers, children that reflect the glory of God to the world. The Great Commission is the final and ultimate reiteration of this mandate. Because of the fall of humanity, not everyone is reflecting the image and the glory of God. We are broken image bearers. And we are sinners, not all are children of God. And so the Great Commission is giving to us this desire to fulfill the mandate to reflect the glory of God to the nations until Christ returns. So making disciples is the original call of humanity and it's the ultimate call of Christianity. To glorify God by making disciples of Jesus that reflect his glory to the earth is the call of every church. It's the call of every Christian. As we gather together every weekend to carry out the Great Commission during the week, the goal of our lives is to be obedient to the command to make disciples of all people. But let's be honest. Most of us are not involved. The question I want to ask you, who are you discipling? I will never forget that fall day in 2006, sitting at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, sitting under the class of Dr. Chuck Lawless. Dr. Lawless asked this question, who are you discipling? The answer, no one. From that moment, God has always put on my heart to disciple at least three men ongoing at all times. Who are you discipling? Now, no doubt, you're probably saying, Pastor, I want a disciple, but there are things that keep me from it. Well, there, there's a, at least a couple of things that keep us from making disciples. Number one is doubt. Doubt keeps us from making disciples. What, what is this doubt? Well, number one, we doubt the power of the gospel. 
or we doubt our ability to share the gospel, or we even maybe doubt that it actually matters. We see the broken world around us, we see broken people, and we doubt that us sharing the gospel will make a difference. We lack the confidence and the power of the gospel to do the work of God. And you say, Pastor, I don't. Well, here's the truth, most of us do. Because how many opportunities have we had to share the gospel even this week, and we shirk back because of fear? This text tells us that there were disciples who worshiped Jesus, but they doubted. Another thing that keeps us from making disciples is not just doubt, but distraction. Distraction in an ADHD world, we are distracted by so many things. We're distracted by television, social media, politics, sports, fitness, family, and even buying stuff on Amazon. You know, it's amazing how because you can get it in two days, you buy things that you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. <laughs> We're so distracted. We can also be distracted at doing good things, doing church things, and not make disciples. Most churches, most people in leadership are so busy running programs and doing events and getting ready for the weekend that they neglect to make disciples during the week. Now, this doesn't mean that weekend gatherings do not matter. We are commanded to gather. But the mission of our church is not to gather audiences, but to grow disciples. Building an audience is not the same thing as making disciples. And the truth is that in a post-COVID, post-Christian world, the weekend is becoming less effective for truly reaching people for Christ. You know, during the pandemic, uh, my family and I uh, would, uh, during the height of it, when our church was closed, uh, we would watch the worship services online. And maybe some of you are still doing that. And maybe you experienced that here at first. And, and it's, 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 listen, there's nothing like watching yourself preach. Just want you to understand that. And so we would watch the 930 service. And, and then I didn't really like the preacher, so we would skip the 11 o'clock. <laughs> and so I, I won't forget it at one 11 o'clock time, which is for all my entire life, I'm always at church. I mean, since I was seven days old, I've been at church. Okay. And so I had never experienced what it's like to be on the roads on a Sunday during church time. And so I went out to, to go to the store and, um, with a couple of kids. And for the first time, I saw all the heathens on the road that I never knew were out there. And here's what you have to understand. Most people in Naples, most people in Collier County, they don't have church on their radar. If, we're, if our strategy is just to hold back and pray that they show up, they're never going to come. For years, churches have measured success through attendance, through buildings, and through cash in the bank. It has been well known that you count nickels and noses. And listen, people and money are not bad. They are necessary to move the mission forward but they cannot be the goal in and of themselves. People and money are input metrics that you put in to the church's disciple-making process that should result in making disciples. 
One of the most harrowing things as a pastor that I've done through the years is to take the number of baptisms and take the church budget and divide the number of baptisms by the dollar spent on a church budget and it can be in the tens of thousands of dollars per baptism. If all we make church about is showing up and giving money, we should not be surprised when people don't want to come to our church. Sadly, for many churches, the functional Great Commission has been make more worship attenders, baptizing them to get your numbers up, guilt them into groups, and teach them to volunteer a few hours a month. Why do we focus on this? Because it's quicker to count. It's easier to do and takes less time to see results. Churches, pastors, leaders, and individuals, we want to see results. We live in an instant result world. And we want to use these results to validate our lives because the church has been suckered into the attractional model of success. And we believe that if we have the best show and the best programs, we'll grow. Well, let me just tell you something. Mushrooms grow overnight. Strong oak trees take time. Will Mancini in his book Future Church says that the scandal of our time is that we have made attendance the numerical byproduct of disciple making into the proof of disciple making even though we may not be making disciples at all. You know what God wants first, Naples? God wants each and every believer to reproduce real authentic fruit-bearing disciples of Jesus. Those who genuinely follow Jesus, worship Jesus, share the gospel, grow in their faith, serve others, love others, care for their family, care for their neighbors, and care for their nation. And sadly, many of us have been playing church rather than being the church. David Platt said this, disciple making is messy, it's slow, tedious, even painful at times. It is all these things because it's relational. Jesus has not given us an effortless step-by-step -step formula for impacting nations for his glory. He has given us people and he said, live for them, love them, serve them, lead them. Lead them to follow me and lead them to lead others to follow me. And in the process, you will multiply the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what you want. That's what I want. But let's be honest, we're distracted. And so we must not let the distractions of our day stop us from the mission God has given us. So how can we do that? I'm so glad you asked. You're such a smart group. It's gonna come by three convictions. There are convictions that sustain us. In the midst of all the distraction, in the midst of all the doubt, there are three convictions that Jesus gives his disciples both then and now that every believer needs to have. And if you and I can hold on to these three convictions, we will make disciples, we'll live the life God wants us to live, and we'll live the life we were created for. Let me give you these three. Number one, God wants to use you. God wants to use me. Number two, God has empowered me. God has empowered you. And number three, God is with me. God is with you. Let's walk through those. Number one, God wants to use me. You'll see this in the text. Jesus here has gathered the 11 disciples 
to meet him in Galilee with the purpose of sending them out to change the world. The 11 that he gave this mission to were not the cultural elite. They were not the intelligentsia of that day. They were ordinary, common folk, hicks from the sticks, who had been changed by Jesus. They were not technocrats, they were not professionals. Paul Tripp in his recent book, Lead, said, I would have thought they're not ready. It's just too soon. They need to know so much more. They need to come to a deeper understanding of what just happened. They need time to mature. But in the middle of the most amazing, confusing, gloriously mind-bending moment in history, Jesus didn't hesitate. He simply said, go. See, making disciples is not the job of the professional. It's not the job of the paid minister. It's not the job of the varsity super Christians. It must be the job of every Christian. And I want you to understand, this is a culture shift. What I'm sharing with you this morning is a culture shift. And here's what you gotta understand. It will never be a church-wide movement until it's a movement in the wider church. God desires for all people, all people that are his people, to make disciples. And you get this in that first imperative, verse 19, go. In the present active indicative case, he says, as you are going. It is not if you go, but as you go. The implication is, is that people are going. Think about this week. Where have you been? Now, some of you may be watching online and with maybe some health concerns, you haven't been very many places. But I dare say that many of you have been places because I've been in Naples this week and I've saw some of you. You go to the mall, you go to work, you go to the store, you go to the gym, you go to the park, you go to a sporting event. You go everywhere in between. You're gonna go. Some of you have been going more than you've ever gone before. Jesus says go with intentionality. Make intentional, real relationships with people. Not fake, real. And leverage those real relationships to point people to Jesus. Evangelism isn't that hard. Evangelism is just meeting a new person. That's all it is. Francis Chan, who has a way with words, said this. He said, somehow we have created a church culture where the paid ministers do the ministry and the rest of us show up, put some money in the plate, and leave feeling inspired or fed. We have moved so far away from Jesus' command that many Christians don't have a frame of reference for what disciple-making looks like. The interesting thing is that if you read the book of Acts, Dr. Luke painstakingly goes out of his way to show us that the gospel traveled farther and faster around the world in the mouths and through the mouths of regular Christians than the apostles. Stephen Neal, a Christian historian, said this, nothing is more notable than the anonymity of these early missionaries in Acts. Luke does not turn aside to mention the name of a single one of those pioneers who laid the foundation. Few, if any, of the great churches were really founded by the apostles. Peter and Paul may have organized a church in Rome, but they certainly didn't start it. I love Billy Graham. You love Billy Graham? He's with Jesus. But to my knowledge, as great as he was, he never planted a church. See, here's what you have to understand. You don't have to go to seminary or be college educated to make disciples of Jesus. 
You just need to know who Jesus is, be changed by Jesus, love Jesus, and wanna make him known. A few months ago, uh, I had the opportunity as a trustee of the International Mission Board to hear a story of a man in a very restricted country who left that very restricted country to go to another very restricted country. While he was in this other restricted country, he met a man who was a Christ follower, and that man befriended him and led him to Jesus Christ. And for the next few weeks, he discipled this man. This man, after his discipleship training, was so inspired that he went back to his restricted country. And guess what he did? He started sharing Jesus. And guess what happened to him? They put him in prison. And we found word through the man who discipled this man that they, he was communicating to him in the prison. And here's what the man, new Christian, maybe a few months old, said to the man who discipled him. I cannot wait to get out because I want to make his name known. Jesus has given me a new life and it's worth sharing. That man wasn't seminary educated. That man didn't have a PhD. That man is a Christian, and that's what Christians do. You have to understand, God does not need you. God does not need me, but he wants to use you. And if you and I are not willing to be used, then he'll move on to somebody else. The question that we should ask ourselves this morning is this, am I even a disciple of Jesus if I'm not making disciples of Jesus? Spurgeon put it best, he says, you are either a missionary or you are an imposter. If we're gonna see true kingdom advance from Naples to the nations, it's not gonna be through a huge event, it's not gonna be from a gifted pastor, it's gonna be ordinary people who are making disciples that make disciples. That's what it is. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. God wants to use me. God wants to use you. Secondly, God has empowered me. Verse 18, Jesus says, all exousia, all authority has been given to me. The resurrected king, second member of the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal with Father and Holy Spirit, has been entrusted all authority all rights, all prerogative. It's his prerogative. Jesus says, because it's my prerogative, I authorize you to make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching all people in my name. Jesus sends them out in his authority. So if someone were to ask them, who sends you? The disciples would say, Jesus did. If someone asked you, who sends you? You say, Jesus did. There's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, where Jesus, right after giving this command, gave another command after the Great Commission. And this command was, behold, I'm sending you the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. This command was simply, go and wait, or go and do nothing. And some people are still obeying that command to this day. What were they to wait for? Well, why would he tell them after giving this great mission, this great commission, to do nothing, to wait? What were they waiting for? It wasn't what they were waiting for. It was who they were waiting for. 
They were waiting for the Holy Spirit's power. That's why in Acts chapter one, verse eight, the, Jesus says, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus says, wait until the power shows up. Well, why did Jesus make them wait? Why did he, as we know, wait, make them wait 10 days? Why didn't Jesus just immediately give them the spirit at the moment of that commission? Here's why. Why does God make us wait? Why did he make them wait? It was to show us and to teach us that the great commission is not something that we accomplish for Jesus, but it must be something that Jesus does through us. See, the Holy Spirit is Christ in the Christian. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. See, the power to fulfill the Great Commission is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who convicts, he convinces, and he points people to their need for a savior. He transforms lives and he makes them authentic disciples. Apart from the Holy Spirit working in and through us, we are powerless to accomplish the task of making disciples. It's not how many books you read, how many conferences you attend, how many strategies you implement. It's time in God's word, praying that the Spirit of God and the power of God is manifested in our lives that changes the world. How many of you have ever mounted a TV before on the wall? Any of you ever mounted a TV on a wall? I've seen it done before. I want you to understand, choir, that hard work fascinates me. I can watch hard work all day long. About a year ago, I decided to take this venture of mounting a TV on the wall. So I got a bracket, I got my drill, I got those proper anchors, I got a level, I got everything together. I put the drill in the wall, Bzz, 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 all in there, perfect. Level, measured it, wonderful. Put that TV on. It was so well put on that it would take an act of God to pull it down. Stood back and looked in awe at what I had just done. Got the power cord and there was a problem. <laughs> Two inches too short. <laughs> I learned something. You can put a TV on, you can mount a TV on, you can make it perfect, you can make it where it takes an act of God to pull that sucker down, but if you can't plug it into the power outlet, it's worthless. The same is true for us, First Naples. We can have everything that the world says is perfect for a church. We can have every bell, every whistle, everything on the level made it so that it will not be broken. But if we're not connected to the power of God, we are useless. Bono said this, religion is what happens when the Spirit of God has left the building. And I'm afraid that for many people, we've been relying too much on our own ingenuity, our own techniques and strength, rather than the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work that Jesus has given us to do. What does Zachariah say? 
In our prayer time this morning with the deacons, one deacon mentioned this verse. He said, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. See, we have no excuse. If you are a believer, you cannot say, I am not able to make disciples. Because the same Holy Spirit in the Apostle Peter, in the Apostle Paul, in Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in Billy Graham, in Lottie Moon, is the same Holy Spirit inside of you. And the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus' ministry and raised him from the dead is the same Holy Spirit inside of you. So we can have confidence that the mission will succeed. I want you to understand that Jesus is not in heaven hoping that you this morning will get this message and obey it. He is not wringing his hand saying, oh, we'll never reach Naples, we'll never reach the nations unless this church gets it. No, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and therefore he can and will ensure his salvation will spread over the entire world. And he's given us everything we need to do what he's called us to do. We have all the Holy Spirit we need, we just don't use what we've got. God wants to use me. God has empowered me. God is with me. What does he say? Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is a guarantee that makes everything possible. This promise makes sense because the work of the mission continues to the end of the age. The Holy Spirit inside of me is Jesus going with me every step of the way. Jesus is the one who's building his church. Not Alan Brumbach, not the staff, not the deacons, not the lay leadership. Jesus builds his church. And so if I know that he is with me and I know that he is for me, then I can trust him to go to the difficult places, the hard places, and the dangerous places. Because the one who has all authority over heaven and earth is the one who is with me in the mission. So every person, every location, everything are under his authority. There is never a speck of dust or a human being over which Jesus does not have authority. And therefore, greater is he that is in me than anyone who's against me. John Stott on this text said this, his authority on earth allows us to dare to go to all the nations. His authority in heaven gives us our only hope of success. And his presence with us leaves us with no other choice. Because I know that God is with me, I can go anywhere he leads. Why? Because he promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. We're never alone. If you want to experience his presence in your life, you will experience it most when you're obedient to make disciples. You know, when, when, with, with my kids, when, when they're disobedient, they don't wanna be in my presence. But when they're obedient, they want to be in my presence. Some of you say, you know, pastor, I don't feel God in my life. 
Could it be that the reason you don't feel God in your life is because you are not following and obeying him? You know, I've spoken to a lot of people around the world in the 1040 window who are at the very front lines of the gospel advance. And each one of them testified to this fact, that it was the presence of Jesus in their life that gave them strength to continue. Just a couple of years ago, I was in a very dangerous place in the Middle East, a place that just a few years previous, ISIS had strongholds. Working with personnel that are in the area, I asked him, how in the world can you serve in a place like this? In the spring and summer, the temperatures get to well over 120 degrees. It's horrible. Here's what he said. Knowing that Jesus will never leave us and will always be with us and for us and not against us gives us the peace, confidence, and direction to keep going on no matter what this broken world throws at us. Let me end. I want you to understand, this world is not gonna get any better. This broken world is not, it doesn't matter how many slogans you can come up with, this nation is not gonna get any better. I believe with all of my heart that persecution is coming to the church of God in America. It's happening everywhere else. Sadly, many of us have been sung to sleep by Satan's lullabies of living our best life now. And I believe that in the years to come that the real Christians are going to come out and the false ones are gonna fall out. Here's the question. Do you wanna make a difference? Yesterday, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of one of the most horrific days in American history. On that day, 19 men hijacked four commercial airliners, killing almost 3,000 people and 6,000 injured. The world was changed forever. We no longer think about travel, security, terrorism, or first responders the same. At the end of our service in a moment, we're going to honor and recognize brave men and women who answered the call of serving in the police department, the fire department, and emergency medical teams. We know that on September the 11th, 2001, 343 firefighters, 80 police officers, and eight EMT workers lost their lives saving others. One particular story is of a 24-year-old equities trader named Wells Crother. Wells was on the 104th floor of the South Tower. He also served as a volunteer firefighter and a, was a former lacrosse player for Boston College. He is known in history as the man with a red bandana. Amid the smoke, the chaos, and the debris, Carruther helped, Carruthers helped injured office workers get to safety. He directed people up and down the stairways. He even carried an injured woman on his back 17 floors down. Then he ran back up those 17 floors to help others with firefighters to safety. History tells us that he, is, he saved at least a dozen people. One gentleman remembers hearing that as Crothers came back up the seven, to the 78th floor to this elevator area, that he 
Crothers said out loud, everyone who can stand, stand now. If you can help others, do so. And he went back and forth until the tower collapsed and his body was found alongside firefighters on the stairwell. First Naples, what God is saying to you today is this. Everyone who can stand, stand now. If you can help others, do so. Do you understand that God is calling you to make a difference in this broken world? He wants to use you to change lives. He has empowered you to do it, and he is with you all along the way. You say, Pastor, how do I know? How do I know? Well, who gave you this command? Jesus. The one who died on the cross to save your soul. If the one who died for you gives you a command, what should you do? If you can help others, do so. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded you. For lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Some of you this morning, you need to give your life to Jesus. Some of you this morning, you need to take that next step of baptism. But many of us in this room need to recommit our lives to the mission that God has for our church. Father, in Jesus' name, what I couldn't say, what I didn't know, your Holy Spirit has already said. And Father, I pray that you would do a work in First Baptist Church, Naples, that would not only reverberate in Naples, in Southwest Florida, but the nations. God, raise up men and women who will obey the call. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.